English author H.G. Wells was one of the most prolific writers of his day. He wrote over a hundred books, 50 of those novels. They called him the Shakespeare of science fiction. Some of his most provocative novels include The Time Machine, The Invisible Man, The Island of Dr. Moreau, and The War of the, Word, of the Worlds, which was turned into a movie directed by Steven Spielberg. He once wrote a lesser-known short story called The Country of the Blind. It's a story about a forgotten, inaccessible valley in Ecuador where for some reason everyone was born blind. They could touch flowers, smell flowers, taste flowers, but never see the magnificent beauty of flowers. Despite this and no contact with the outside world, they seemed to do life in the hidden valley quite well. Food, water, houses, educational structure, they had everything but sight. Finally, a young man from the outside world was exploring that region and attempted to summit an unconquered crest. When he did, he accidentally fell off a cliff and slid down, 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 and the deep foliage of the forest broke his fall. He survived and stumbled into this forgotten country. It wasn't long before he encountered the people that he realized every single person he met was blind. And he gathered as many as would listen to him and began to talk to them of the things around them. Of color, yellow flowers, green grass, blue sky, red birds. He described the faces of the children to the parents. He even told them of another world out there beyond the valley. They sat mesmerized listening at first, but their faces eventually grew downcast. In the end, they chose not to believe him. They so tire of his stories about sight, they conclude he was insane, simply out of his mind. For some reason, in spite of all of this, the young man decided to stay and, and work for a while. It wasn't long before he fell in love with a girl from a prominent family and decided to marry her and settle down in this country of the blind. The girl's father didn't like it. He went to a respected elder, a doctor, to talk about this proposal. This doctor was like a, a blind man leading the blind. He concluded it would never work unless something radical occurred. Since no one and nothing could make the blind girl see, the doctor said, in order to cure this man of his insanity, we must remove, we must remove his eyes. The father asked, Then he will be sane? Oh, yes. Then he will be perfectly sane and quite an admirable citizen. The father goes back and reports to the young man that he can marry his daughter only if he submitted to an operation that would blind him for life. The man left to think it over. Wells writes he had fully intended to go to some lonely place but ended up in a meadow filled with beautiful flowers. The glistening sun shone into the valley and made the flowers dance. He realized then and there that this country was nothing more than a trap of ignorance and futility. And he escaped. He escaped with his life from the country of the blind. In our text, we find instructions for living in the country of the blind. Paul and Titus stumbled upon this country and evangelized it. They started churches all over Crete. Paul left Titus in the country of the blind and sent to him this compact letter. 
a, a pocket guide to the life of the church. It's super condensed. It's vacuum packed. All the air is out. It's squeezed tight. But when we break the seal, it's going to expand. It's amazing how small it is, but how large it becomes while expositing. Four weeks ago, Sarah heard one of our boys speaking to his sister saying, we start Titus today. And I looked at it this morning in my Bible and it's only one page. Titus is only going to take us one Sunday, maybe two at most. <laughs> in my opening exposition, about 20 minutes in, he leaned over and whispered to Sarah, Mom, are we still in the, are we still in the first word of the book? <laughs> Sarah said, uh, yes. He said, Mom, we're going to be in this book for a long time, aren't we? <laughs> yes, yes we are. That's true. It's a, it's a bargain basement letter. You get your money's worth. Now, you and my children will be happy to know that we finished chapter 1 and we're going to move on now to chapter 2. Chapter 1 deals with doctrine and duty in the church. Chapter 2 deals with doctrine and duty in the home. In a couple of weeks, we'll be in chapter 3 and that deals with doctrine and duty in the world. Paul's first instruction to Titus while he's in the country of the blind is to teach a doctrine that cites the blind. Notice verse 1. But as for you, Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. The word teach is the present and perfect tense. Always pay attention to the present and perfect tense. It means to do it continually, to never stop. In other words, Titus, you give to the country of the blind sound doctrine over and over, again and again. The word sound is where we get our word hygiene. It's clean. It's clean doctrine. Don't teach unclean doctrine. That's what these false teachers in the country are doing. They are the blind leading the blind, as Jesus said. Their false doctrine keeps the blind blind. Titus, you need to teach something that can open the eyes of the blind. Sound doctrine could also be translated healthy doctrine. Healthy doctrine gives your soul the proper diet and takes your soul to the gym. Someone in my small group said going to church should be more like going to the gym than going to the movies. Teach a doctrine that's hard to lift, that gives resistance, that makes you sweat, that leaves you sore after you encounter it, that breaks your soul down so that it can build your soul up. Titus, humor is fine, but you're not a comedian. You're a doctrinal preacher. And friends, if, if you're here and you're not a Christian, I am not denying my agenda. I am preaching as a dying man to dying men. I am preaching with the expectation that your eyes will be open when you encounter the doctrine of Christ. And you may not think of yourself as blind. But that is exactly what Jesus said you are. You are spiritually blinded, living in the country of the blind. See, your soul has eyes. And the eyes of your soul must be opened. But here's the good news. Jesus Christ came to open the eyes of the blind. So that you can see for the first time the blades of green grass at the foot of the cross. 
the yellow-bellied coward disciples running away from the cross. The blue midday sky turned dark as God poured out his wrath on the cross. The red blood dripping from the head of Christ, the mouth of Christ, the side of Christ. He endured all of this to bring you to repentance. And because his blood ran red, your sins can be washed white. Non-Christian, my blind friend, I have a doctrine that can make your hands clap, make your feet jump, make your lips smile, and make your eyes see. And don't look at me like I'm insane. I'm in Christ, shielded from the punishment my sins deserve. Friend, there's a whole new life beyond this valley. Come on. Come on out and taste and see that the Lord is good. Now, you can't really see it in English translations, but there is a definite article in front of the words sound doctrine. It's the sound doctrine, claiming exclusive truth. In the country of the blind, is much more comfortable with opinions than truth claims. Also notice in verse 1, things which fit it. In other words, ethical duties which sound doctrine demands. So Titus is called to teach both doctrine and ethics. And then teach them in relation to one another and show how they fit perfectly. And not merely in general principles only, but in detailed applications. Titus, this is important because homes and personal lives are wrecked because of unhealthy doctrine, unclean doctrine. And you need to show how healthy doctrine can mend wrecked homes. And that brings us now to our second movement in the text, and it's this. Unpack in detail what it looks like to live out this healthy doctrine. Unpack in detail what it looks like to live out this healthy doctrine. Paul urges Titus to teach what healthy doctrine should produce in five different groups of people. Older men, older women, younger women, younger men, and slaves. So let's begin working through these five groups. The first group, older men. Notice verse 2. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Now, everyone defines old differently. So what's the intent of the text? One Greek philosopher said it referred to those that were over the age of 60. Some Greek literature in this day says it's written to any man who has now reached the age of 50. It doesn't, it doesn't really matter. It's simply the gray beards of the flock. And they are to be sober-minded. Meaning older men in the church should be clear-headed. Sober in judgment. They aren't quick to jump to any conclusions. They process information with spiritual maturity. Next, dignified. This is a description also required of deacons and their wives in 1 Timothy. Chrysostom goes to great lengths to show that older men in Crete lacked this specific trait. They were young once, but immature for a lifetime. It's possible to be an older Christian man and not be dignified. 
An older Christian isn't automatically a godly Christian. Men, you should exhibit a certain gravitas, a nobility. There's weight in the way you speak and the way you act. Thirdly, the gray beards are to have inner self-control. You don't fly off the handle. You are a rock when everyone else is going crazy. I have a pastor friend of mine in Georgia. He's in his late 50s. He actually called me on Friday. He will often stop a conversation in mid-sentence. He's talking, and then it just goes silence. And I'm on the other end saying, are, are you going to finish your sentence? And I'm just so task-driven. I'm like, I've got every minute of my day planned out. I've got 90 more seconds for this phone call, and that, that's it. Finish your sentence. And then he will say, I'm checking my spirit to make sure if what I'm saying is appropriate. It's called self-control. Next, sound and faith. Graybeard, are you trusting God? Have you grown in your faith? Things that shook you when you were 20 shouldn't shake you now. Circumstances that weakened you when you were 30 shouldn't weaken you now. Your faith has been exercising, worked out. You can now handle more weight. The word here, sound, is the same word in verse 1. So here's the question. Do you possess a healthy faith? Next, love. Graybeard. The older you get, the more loving you should become. Now, your appearance may become more and more intimidating, but your spirit should become more and more affectionate. Healthy doctrine produces that. If you're becoming grumpier and more cynical, that's evidence that you're holding to an unhealthy doctrine. You can't just say whatever you want. You don't get an old man pass with Christ. He put the old man to death and made you a new man, a new Loving man. Finally, steadfastness. It's easy for zeal for obedience to wane as you grow older. You graybeards face a real temptation to coast for the rest of your life. You feel like you've done enough, you've made enough money, you've given enough money, you're tired. And you know what's happening? You're losing your steadfastness. You're going to start to turn inward and say things like, I worked my whole life. Now it's just time for me to enjoy things. And you will begin to pursue hard after hobbies. And my plea to you is don't you dare waste the last years of your life in fishing or golfing or collecting toys. Give it to loving and serving the church. Henry Ward Beecher said, It is not the going out of the port, but the coming in that determines the success of a voyage. Graybeards, how are you docking? How are you coming in? First group is the graybeards. Second group, notice verse 3. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. Titus already, just think about this, Titus already visited these churches and he changed the color of the carpet. He bruised egos by refusing and choosing certain elders. Then he has the nerve to make home visits and tell all the graybeards how to behave. 
And now Paul effectively says, Titus, I want you to walk up into the beauty shop and tell all those old ladies under the big hair dryers how they need to live their lives. I mean, Paul had to know Titus was going to get hit with a purse. <laughs> I, just, I just picture Paul smiling as he writes these words. And Titus, tell the older women, oh, they're going to mess you up. <laughs> tell the older women to... <laughs> now, let's answer an important question. Who qualifies as an old woman? See, I can't say gray heads because there's a such thing as hair dye. Plus, the new style for younger women is to dye their hair gray. So at what age are you an old woman? I've actually given that question to Pastor Dan Herbster, and you can ask him after the service. <laughs> Just make sure you have your purse ready, ladies. <laughs> Elizabeth Elliott wrote an article entitled, Who are the WOTTs? WOTTs, it's, it's, it's an acronym for Women of Titus II. Where are the women of Titus II? Women of Titus 2 are to be, notice in the text, reverent. Let's do a little word study here. This is a unique word that only occurs one time in the New Testament. It means temple fitting or appropriate behavior in a temple. It speaks of sacred duties. Women of Titus 2, W-O-T-T's, are to carry into daily life the demeanor of a priestess in the temple. Or as we might say, she is to practice the presence of God. To allow her sense of his presence to permeate her whole life. And by the way, you single guys, you're not looking for a contestant on The Bachelor. You need to find a woman like this who practices the presence of God. Women of Titus 2, they embrace their age. And they don't run from it. There's nothing more unbecoming of Christ than an older woman despising her age and grasping for youth. Chasing after fantasies of youthfulness. 60-year-old women shopping at Forever 21. That's wrong. It's just wrong. God designed your life to progress and mature. There is value in those wrinkles and worth in those gray hairs. Next on the list... Not slanderers. Evidently, ladies in this stage of life are prone to particular behaviors. The Greek word translated slander is diabolos. It's where we get our English word devil. This word is used 38 times in the Bible, and 35 of those times it's used to refer to Satan. Two of the remaining three are referring to women slandering. The 35 times it's used to refer to Satan, it's in the masculine. And it's, it's really interesting. The two times it's referring to women slandering, it switches from masculine to feminine. And you could faithfully translate this. Older women should not be she-devils. Don't be devilish in your speech. Healthy doctrine puts a governor on your tongue. Next on the list, slaves to much wine. W-O-T-T's are in control not only of what comes out of their mouth, but what goes into their mouths. The word Paul uses here for slaves means exactly what you think to describe literal slavery. Don't allow wine to dominate and control you. Evidently, there's a big problem in the country of the blind. They like to drown their sorrows in a glass. Don't run to wine in a bathtub when you've had a hard day. Run to the word. Run to Christ. Find relief 
and the comforter. Next on the list, teach what is good. A healthy church will have older women who put down the glass and pick up someone to disciple. They become a mentor. The word teach is not talking about formal education. So this is not a classroom setting with three ring binders. Don't think courses or programs. Think regular one-on-one meetings. Plus informal teaching by word and example. Conversations at Chick-fil-A and talks while pushing the strollers. Group one, graybeards. Group two, WOTTs. Group three, verse four. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children. Most marriages in this country were arranged. They didn't meet at the club or the gym. They met after their parents had arranged it. And loving their husbands was a struggle. Just because we have escaped arranged marriages doesn't mean ladies have, have escaped this struggle. It's not easy for you to love your husband. How do you love your husband who comes home after working and turns on the TV and does not engage you in any meaningful conversation? How do you love a husband who keeps running to his mama with all your problems? How do you love a husband who makes stupid financial decision after stupid financial decision after stupid financial decision? How do you do that? You need to find an older lady. That couple that's been married for 40 years in your church, she'll teach you how to love that rascal. <laughs> Some of you husbands think, man, this is, this is news to me. But I'm confident of this. My wife doesn't struggle to love me. <laughs> Friend, you're not near as lovable as you think you are. She may not have voiced it, but she's battling every day. It's World War III. Ladies, I would just, just want to throw this out there. Your love for your husband is not based on his worthiness to be loved. It's based on God's command to love him. Is your mentality where if he doesn't do something right, then he doesn't get my love. You're feasting on unhealthy doctrine. Notice the next phrase, and children. Now, since both Greek words include the term for love, this repetition is not, but it really should be preserved in every translation. How you should love your husbands and love your children. See, some of you are new Christians, and, and you will soon discover that Christianity isn't some kind of miracle drug against marital and parental challenges. Younger women have to be taught how to love their colicky baby and that child who never stops talking. You have to be taught how to love that teen with buds in his ears and that daughter who is manipulating you. My wife had a WOTT teach her about nursing and how to get the baby to sleep through the night and how to make it through postpartum. You need to search that out. You need to be aggressive and go hard after a W-O-T-T. They don't fall into your laps. Be aggressive. The Greek word here, train, young women to love their husbands and children. The, the Greek word train literally means to bring a person back to her senses. You could translate it, wise her up. And, and younger ladies, you're going to be tempted, especially in this day, to listen to Dr. Phil. You shouldn't. He can't wise you up. But a godly woman who has walked with Christ for years, she can. 
Even the ordering of the words is a gentle reminder that even more important for the love of one's children is the love of one's spouse. Your children come second to the spouse. I remember a college prof, a college prof's wife told my wife, you know, my husband knew. She was giving her, you know, marriage advice and parenting advice. My husband knew my girls were more important than him. That's dangerous. That's why empty nesters' divorce rate is extremely, extremely high. They made their children their life. Verse 5 is a super easy one, so let's just, just follow along if you would as I read. It's going to wash over so nicely. To be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands. Mm. Mm. Can anyone pick out a couple of controversial phrases there? I mean, Titus has just been nailing us all series. I've lost, I've lost seven pounds in Titus. Seven pounds. I mean, it is... It's a, such a pleasant book. It's a pleasant book. Radical feminism has swept into the church. And passages like this are deemed sexist, chauvinistic, and outdated. But I want to take it each at a t- one at a time and unpack it. Verse 5, ladies are to be first pure. Apparently in the country of the blind, young ladies would stray when the husband was away. It always begins in the mind before it gets to the act. Maybe it's in the mind for a year. Maybe it's entertained in the mind for a month. I've seen it entertained in the mind just just for a day or two before it moved to an action. You got to be pure in mind and body. Verse 5, as it continues, working at home. Now, some of you ladies get this mental image here of a mother chained to a kitchen sink with eight crying children at her feet. I mean, you really view working at home as an institutionalized form of slavery. Well, let's, let's just see what the phrase means and what it does not mean. First, what it does not mean. Paul didn't mean that the only place a woman could work was in the home, within those four walls and under that particular roof. This does not mean that young women are not to work outside the home because there are multiple places in Scripture where we see examples of women working outside the home. I'll just give you one. Proverbs 31. It shows a woman who's killing it. She's an entrepreneur outside the home, but she's also quarterbacking the home. So that's what it doesn't mean. What does it mean? The the translation workers at home is a good one. I I still prefer J.B. Phillips' translation a little better. Home lovers. Home lovers. What Paul is opposing is not a wife's pursuit of a profession, but that her family is her primary focus, her primary love. Ladies, if you're working a nine-to-five, nothing in this verse forbids you from doing that. But this verse does imply that the home is the number one priority for your energy and your labor. So you have to be careful about ranking your job above your husband or giving your career greater attention than your children. Now let me address the stay-at-home wives and mothers. By the way, we had someone here a couple weeks ago in Titus. And she said, uh, <clears throat> I disagree with everything you said today. Everything you said today. But I do find it really interesting that uh, you use the Bible. I'm not used to that in churches anymore. <laughs> I still disagree with everything, but you proved it from the Bible. 
I should get back here before I go on a little rabbit trail. All right, let me, let me talk to uh, st- stay-at-home wives and mothers. There were seasons of life when I asked Sarah to go to work. And when we were first married, we were broke as a joke for two years. Sarah taught at a college while I completed my first master's. Sarah had to work to get us through it. And when we reached a place where we could afford living on one income, she wanted, she wanted to stay at home. And she faced some radical feminism. Ladies who looked at her wanting to be a stay-at-home wife as second class, like she missed the bus, like she's really out of step, like she's wasting her talents at home. And she had a wonderful Christian lady step into her life and say, don't you let anyone make you feel second class because of your choice. There's nothing harder than being a stay-at-home wife or a stay-at-home mother. Mandy, Mandy was her name. You probably think Mandy was a stay-at-home mother herself. She wasn't. Mandy taught English at a private college. Now she heads an English department at a very expensive private grade school in Knoxville. Stay-at-home wife. In our culture, it's easy for a woman without a career to feel like a nobody. But what you do is valuable. It's worthy. However, you're still going to be brokenhearted and lonely if you try to get your worth from mothering or wifing. You have to get your identity from Christ and Christ alone. Next word, kind. She's to be kind. Not cold or cruel, but sympathetic and compassionate. Kind. And then this pleasant phrase, submissive to their own husbands. Now let's consider this in three words. That's how we're going to unpack it. First word, voluntary. Second word, exceptions. Third word, beauty. Voluntary, exceptions, beauty. Let's go first with voluntary. Paul is actually telling wives that this is a voluntary submission to the leadership of their husbands. Submission has to be given freely. You can't force obedience to God's word. Men, it's her verse, not yours. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, this means you shouldn't quote it at your wife unless you want to be slapped. (laughs) It's hers to obey, not yours to demand. If she's not doing it, all you can do is be the kind of leader it would be to be a joy to submit to. You play your role and you trust God with hers. The Greek word for submit does not mean a wife is to suppress her intelligence or strength. She brings her intelligence and strength to the table. Submission does not mean a wife can't push back or confront her husband. Four years into planting Redeemer Presbyterian, Tim Keller was working all the time. Kathy, his wife, thought Tim was working too hard and harming their marriage and harming their children. And he continually ignored her pleas to slow down. So as she tells it, she threw a godly tantrum. She took their fine china out to the balcony and when she saw Tim walking in the house, she began smashing plate after plate with a hammer This all over the street. She wanted to do something dramatic to show Tim he was breaking things in the home. And see, I say it was calculated and godly because she only smashed the saucers where she didn't have matching cups. <laughs> she, she planned this. It's controlled anger. Secondly, exceptions. This command to submit must be balanced with all of Scripture. Clearly, it does not mean a wife submits to every man. You women do not submit to me. 
You submit to your own husband. The submission is to your own husband. Also, she does not submit to her husband if he means, if it means she has to do something unbiblical, unethical, immoral, or illegal. The Bible does not permit a husband to have a me dictator, you doormat mentality. And of course, if there's abuse, immediately go to the authorities. Third word, beauty. The cultural engineers that dominate the media and our educational system, I'm talking from the preschools to the universities, teach that submission is ugly. And God comes along and says, it's beautiful. Contrary to popular misconceptions, there's no inferiority in submissiveness. We see that plainly in the Trinity. Jesus submitted to the Father, and he's not inferior to the Father. Jesus submitted to the Father, and it's not that he has less worth than the Father. One pastor rightly pointed out, a husband sacrificially loving his wife and a wife submitted to her godly husband creates a relationship that the world would never look at and say, mm, how disgusting and archaic. In fact, a, a lot of people who say they are turned off by Christian teaching on headship within marriage are attracted by the Christian marriages they see. First group, gray beards. Second group, W-O-T-T's. Forgot it for a moment. Third group, younger women. Now we see the fourth group, verse 6. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. That's it. It ends there. That's it. And some of you ladies are like, what? I get 14 things and he gets one? Why just one? Because if you had to boil down the Achilles heel of most young men in the country of the blind, it's that they are not self-controlled. And men, you need to be self-controlled. Self-controlled in your anger. Self-controlled anger pursues justice and mercy. Anger without self-control pursues vengeance. You need to be self-controlled in your anger. You need to be self-controlled in your tongue. Are the words coming out of your mouth in step with the gospel? The public conversations, the jokes, and the private ones. Thirdly, be self-controlled with ambition. Pursue the right things in life. Appetites. Be disciplined in your drink intake. Be self-controlled in your sexual urges. J.C. Ryle said, being ruled by the desires of your body will murder your soul. If you find yourself fantasizing about a woman's body, think about the body of Jesus beaten and sliced open for you. Replace one image with another. It's called self-control. And then in the text, it's almost like Paul is giving his one instruction for young men, and it reminds him of the young man to whom he's writing, Titus, and then he says, let me just spell out some particulars for you, Titus. And he does in verse 7. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. The Greek word for model is where we get our English word for type or mold. My daughter has these little soap molds. You just pour the soap in, let it harden, and it just makes the shape. Titus was to be a mold into which others can be impressed and therefore bear a likeness to him. And we human beings seem to be imitative by nature. 
We need models. They give us direction, challenge, and inspiration. And Titus is to be a verbal and visual example for the young men. Now, before we move on to the fifth group, let me ask you two questions. Number one, who was Titus not commanded to instruct? It's interesting. Of, of all the groups, it's the, it's the young women. They're the only group Titus is not to teach. Chapter 1 was filled with formal teaching. So Titus is to teach everyone formally from behind the pulpit. Everyone. But chapter 2 is filled with informal teaching. This is one-on-one. -on -one. And Titus is to teach older men, older women, younger men, but not younger women. That's the job of the WOTTs. This non-instruction makes sense when the elder is a bachelor. But I think it's also wise if he's married. To avoid any hint of immorality. Just this weekend, I heard about one of my former ministry partners who was fired from his job for carrying on inappropriate conversations with a young woman through text. I'm like hearing it every week, dropping like flies. Question number two, and I'd like for you to answer this one out loud. Don't you want to have a church like Titus 2? Okay, I mean, that was weak, let's be honest. That was weak. Don't you want to have a Titus 2 church? Yes. yes. We need younger men, gospel stallions. And we need older men, gospel mules, to carry on this gospel work. We need everyone. One of the ladies in our church in this service sent me an article where a, a church in Minnesota asked its members 60 and older to find a new church so that they could welcome younger families. In our culture, old peop older people are irrelevant. Trends are set by the young, and the young define what is important. And it shouldn't be this way. But it is in the West. In the East, there's a complete respect for the aged. And the Bible is more East than West. We need both the young and the old. This is our intergenerational vision. Often, the young people have the energy, and the old people have the wisdom. Younger people need to press on with the wisdom of the older saints in the church. And the old need not quench the fire of a youthful enthusiasm. If you're younger, are you respecting the older saints in the church? If you're older, are you deserving of the younger people's respect? Are you using your age intentionally to help the younger or are you just sitting back laughing at all their mistakes? Depending on the city, some churches will have more of one group than the other. Redeemer Prez in New York City has an average age of 33. Their church is filled with dinks. D-I-N-K. Dinks. Double income, no kids. Dinks. Our church, we're, we're actually getting a little older and I'm excited about that. Our average age is around 30 now. And we're filled with six, S, it's a term I made up, six, S-I-I-K, single income, innumerable kids. <laughs> so we're probably going to lean a little younger just because of, you know, where we are. Now, group number five, verse nine, bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything, and they are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering. It's interesting here, verse 3 and verse 9 contain, contain the same Greek word, doulos. And the translators were fine to translate doulos, slave, 
in verse 3, but chose bondservant here. And for all of my days, I will attempt for you to translate this word doulos as slave. Now, for a discussion on the unacceptable essence of slavery, see my Philemon series. I don't for a moment think Paul believed that the practice of slavery ought to exist. He believed to the fullest extent that the great principles of Christianity would overthrow slavery anywhere, and the sooner, the better. But I can't unpack all of that here again. I just did it weeks ago, so check out Philemon. But on this thought, Dabidi Anwabele said, referring to this passage, a hard situation is no reason to live contrary to the gospel. Now, I have some bad news for you. I mean, it's good, it's good news, it's good. But you may take it as bad. Um, I have another movement in the sermon, okay? Now, I'm going to fly through this movement like my son Haddon flies through cheesecake. But I want to introduce you to the third movement. Adorn this healthy doctrine in the country of the blind. In verse 5, verse 8, and verse 10, you'll find the importance of living out this healthy doctrine in the land of the blind. We have three that statements. Live like this so that. Let your marriage be like this so that. Titus, you need to implement this so that. Three that statements. First one's found at the end of verse 5. Verse 5 tells men and women your marriage is a picture of the gospel. This is why you need to implement these things. This is the that. It's on the right side of the that. Your marriage is a public witness to the world. A man who claims to be a believer but cheats on his wife. A woman who claims to be a believer but doesn't submit to her husband. What does that say about the gospel? Paul says this is what your marriage should look like so that it reflects my relationship to the church. Friends, if you have a healthy, godly marriage and you befriend your neighbors, you will have many opportunities to commend Christ to them. Many opportunities to evangelize them. They'll see something in you they want. Verse 8, notice the end of verse 8. That having nothing evil to say about us. Titus, live this way so that they have nothing evil to say about us. If people trip in coming to Christ, let them trip over the cross. And not your uncontrolled tongue or your uncontrolled anger. Don't malign the gospel. Don't allow non-Christians to say that Christianity makes people worse. The 19th century German philosopher, Heinrich Hein. It's my new favorite name. If we have a fifth child, Heinrich Hein. Heinrich Hein, get, get over here, Heinrich. Uh, here, here's, what, um, here's what Heinrich Hein said. He, should, he said, show me your redeemed life, and I might be inclined to believe in your redeemer. And then notice the end of verse 10. So we're picking up here on the slaves where we left off. Why are there slaves to, to not steal from their masters? Well, the end of verse 10 says this. So that, that's the third that, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. This may be my favorite part in the, the 10 verses. Paul entrusts to slaves the responsibility of making the gospel appealing to their masters. The slaves become the Savior's representatives responsible for conduct that can lead to their master's salvation. The word adorn speaks of garnishing a plate to make the main course attractive. 
The word adorn speaks of decorating a table to make the centerpiece pop. So how do we adorn, garnish, decorate, add luster to this healthy doctrine? That's your job, men and women. When others are mouthing off, contentious, disagreeable, gripe behind the boss's back, you be like the slaves in this passage. Adorn the gospel by doing your work with joy and meaning. Show that you work for a different master. Wife and mother, when you're doing you know, your housework, you, it's like putting, putting pearls on a string. But there's no knot at the end, so they just keep going down onto the floor. And, and, and your job can seem endless and meaningless. But those are gospel pearls. Every wipe, wipe of the nose, every change of the diaper, every fold of the clothes. We adorn the gospel by living holy lives. Holiness adorns, garnishes, decorates the healthy doctrine. We have been given the command to tell the life-altering, heart-changing, eye-opening truth to our country of the blind. And when they stop listening, I promise they will not stop watching. Martin Luther summarizes this text so well. He said, because the heathen cannot see our faith, they ought to see our works, then hear our doctrine, and then be converted. Let's land this plane. The man in Wells' novel and the recipient of Paul's novel were not the only ones to enter into the country of the blind. God in human flesh slid down, down, down and had the deep foliage of hay in a hay trough break his fall. He came to a people that were functioning quite well. Food, water, houses, educational structure. They had everything but sight. He told them of another world. Some believed and their eyes were opened. Some thought he was merely insane. So they tried to beat him, scorn him, blind him. Eventually they killed him. Three days later, Jesus Christ rose from the dead. He actually remained on earth for 40 days before he slowly ascended up into heaven where he is now waiting to take us, his redeemed, out of the country of the blind into a new country. The country of perfect sight. Thank you for listening to this resource of Faith Family Church. We gather on Sundays at 495 Hugh Hunter Road in Oak Grove, Kentucky, and are a short drive from Fort Campbell and Hopkinsville, Kentucky, as well as Clarksville, Tennessee. For more information, visit our website, myfaithfamilychurch.com.